to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. Thank you so much for listening. On a recent show, we promised that we would be talking about the cruises we went on. The we I'm talking about is Jason Cochran, who is my colleague at Fromers.com. In fact, he is the editor-in-chief of Fromers.com. He is the author of one of our very best guidebooks, Fromers London. Hey, Jason, welcome back to the Fromer Travel Show and welcome back to the United States. I could say the exact same thing to you. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. Well, we have both been on the water, although I was in a teeny, teeny, tiny ship and you were on the Queen Mary too. (laughs) That's right. And going in very different kinds of water as well. But we'll get into that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I got to say, you know, I I think... I might have had the better experience. Okay, uh, say, but if they, you know, as they used to say in uh, in on the exams in school, show your work. How do you think show it was your such work. a fantastic vacation? And ex- what exactly did you do? Well, we were on a self drive barge along the Canal de Midi in the Occitanie region of France. The Canal de Midi, just to give a little background, was the very first canal created in France. It was built to give a a way to ship goods from the interior of France to the Mediterranean. It actually was commissioned by Louis XIV. So this is an old canal. Yeah, but I guess it was very advanced when they put it in, wasn't it? I mean, that was a big deal back then. It was an engineering marvel because this wasn't flat land. Uh, They had to create an entire system of locks for boats to go from the Mediterranean all the way into the city of Toulouse, which today is uh, Europe's fourth largest city. So we decided to rent a boat. We did it through a company called Le Boat who was terrific. We will actually be doing some work with them on fromers.com to to lay all the cards on the table. And it was a, a fascinating journey, especially for me, because I am a person who gets seasick on a swing. Uh, I, I don't go on boats willingly, but I had been told that this would be a very stable boat, and I wasn't lied to. I actually brought patches with me because I, th- I thought I'd be struggling with, with seasickness, and I didn't have that at all. What was fascinating was that we had to drive the darn thing. Yeah, no, that, um, that's the thing that, yeah, red flag, red flag. That, I mean, I think probably half the people listening are like, I would not drive my own boat on a canal in France. Tell us, though, if it was a challenge. Well, first of all, I wasn't alone. I decided to take my two daughters. My my husband is about to defend his dissertation, and so he couldn't come. He just had too much work. So I brought a dear friend from college, and I allowed my daughters to each bring someone too. So my younger daughter brought an old friend from actually kindergarten up, and my older daughter brought her boyfriend. So it was five women and a man. And we had kind of joked that no way was the dude going to be the captain. We were going to be strong women. We were going to drive the boat. But it turned out the dude was the only one who knew how to drive a boat. <laughs> so he ended up being the captain. But not um, because he was a dude, because he had experience. But yes, because he had experience. And we got about an hour-long lesson. I think it could have, they said it would take one to two hours, but it only took about an hour 
because he he knew a lot of how to do it. So my you, daughter also gave you the learned. Lesson. It wasn't the dude in your group. It was someone else. No, no, no. Yeah. The, the lesson was given to us by a member of the Le Boat staff, a very charming gentleman with a very thick French accent uh, that luckily Colin, my daughter's boyfriend, could understand. And he basically showed us, you know, that you could, there, there were two steering wheels, one on the top deck, one on the bottom deck. He told us never to steer from the bottom deck because the way the windows were, you didn't get full visibility. But he also warned that if somebody happened to just lean on the steering wheel on the bottom deck while somebody was trying to steer on the top deck, it would cause chaos. He told us about the fact that the boat turned pretty slowly. And I didn't realize this. You know, when you drive a car, you turn the wheel and the front wheels go and you go in that direction. With a boat, really what is turning is the back of the boat. Yeah, and so I, it's yeah, yeah, it's it's somewhat of a different ball of wax to get it to go where you want it to go. The other crazy thing about the Canal de Midi is the the bridges are really, really low. So low that often they would be within an inch or two of the top of the steering wheel. So you would have to make sure your head was under the steering wheel when you were going through these bridges. And my, my dear friend Kara happened to be putting on suntan lotion the second day of our of our boat trip, forgot we were under a under a bridge and ended up smacking her head on it really badly. Luckily, her, her sunglasses hit it first and broke, and that got her to move her head away. But so she had a big shiner for the entire trip. Uh, all, the, all the photos of her, she bought new big sunglasses to, to cover it up. We also learned about what you have to do in a lock. And there are a lot of locks along this trip. Uh, so, you know, it's this, it's a very interesting type of vacation. It's very relaxing. Uh, my daughter, my younger daughter and her friend spent most of the vacation in their bikinis, just working on their tans on the deck. But every half an hour or so, everybody has to jump into motion because for those who don't know what a lock is, it's kind of like a water elevator that allows a boat to go from one elevation to another, either up or down. One person has to go ahead of the boat on the land. So you, you let them off the boat so that they can run ahead or bike ahead. We had bikes on the boat and tell the lock master that somebody's coming through. And then you get them to open the gates and then you take the boat in and then one person has to still be on shore because they have to, you throw these ropes up to them. They have to secure them around moorings. They have to hold one. Another person on the boat has to hold another so that the boat doesn't ping pong around as the this water comes rushing at you, lifting the boat up or, or going down. But it's Does that slow, all make it's sense? It's a slow process than it sounds like. I, I know that I've been through some locks and, you know, it, the way you describe it sounds like, oh, no, water everywhere. But it takes – this is a long, <laughs> drawn-out process. You know, it's it, – it, 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 it took it, about 20 minutes, per, I would say. Lock. Yeah, you know, exactly. So it is, per lock. it is relaxing ultimately. You just – once you get everything secure, you wait for the water level to change. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and there's there's some kind of you, – you wear gloves because – 
one of the part of the instruction was how to dump the waste in your tank. And basically everybody's just dumping it into the canal. So when this water is kind of spraying at you, you, yeah, you, you realize what's <laughs> in it. <laughs> so that, that, that was a little, so yeah, I mean, very relaxing, but um, I spoke to another person who was doing this. She was a South African woman who came uh, to France to do this. And she said it was, it was more work than she expected. But a good kind of work. You know, we all had to work together, and that was fun, especially when we were new to the locks and weren't quite sure what we were doing. And I don't know. It, 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 was, it, was, it was a real bonding type of activity, especially for our motley crew, which was, you know, four 20-somethings and two 50-somethings. So there were generational differences, but we all just had a ball together. Well, what did really, you see really well, along the way? I mean, imagine that part of France is gorgeous. That part of France is gorgeous. That part of France and all of France is suffering right now because of, of droughts and heat waves. In fact, uh, we were there during the hottest day in recorded history for that region of France. It went up to 106 degrees. Oh, no. And par yeah, part of what we saw were fields of dead sunflowers because, because the heat had been so intense. Just that week, though, <laughs> actually, if we had gone a week earlier or a week later, it would have been much more temperate. Well, when Europe gets so, a heat wave, it doesn't pull punches. But does the boat? Did your boat have air conditioning in the berths? Oh, thank goodness, it did. And one of the ways the air conditioning was done was they pull up water and recirculate it, and that that caused some problems because the water in the canal was also at a record heat. So we did have to at one point stop and get the air conditioning in the boat fixed. Uh, but they were really, really good about sending somebody down to us. In fact, we had to stop. They give you a spike that you nail into the ground as your own temporary mooring, and then you can tie up your boat to it alongside the canal. So we did that, and, and somebody drove out to see us. Uh, we were able to figure out our GPS and, and tell them where where, where they, we were when, when that happened. Good, because 106 men during the daytime, that would have been dangerous. So I'm so happy you had that AC. That does make it easier. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Quite honestly, we, we kind of, you know, it, it meant we had to travel in an old-fashioned way and siesta during the heat of the day. We did most every got up early. We did most of the boating and sightseeing early. And then, you know, from maybe 2.30 to 6, we just uh, slept and read and did things out of the heat. But boy, was there a lot to see and do. What a beautiful region of France Occitanie is. We started in Toulouse. Uh, that's where we flew into, which is known as the Pink City, because all of the stones are kind of this salmon color. It's really gorgeous, especially at sunset. Lots of great art, the largest Romanesque church in in the world. Great food. The food of this region is cassoulet, which is this bean and meat stew that, if done right, is cooked over the course of two full days. And it has this creamy kind of crackly crust on it. And inside, you, you crack open the crust and you dig your spoon in and there's four different types of meat, you know, like two sausages, a piece of, of uh, duck and a, a piece of beef. And uh, it's, it's kind of like a, a meat pinata, 
in a certain way. That's like food for um, workers. I think people, you know, if you don't go to France often, always think of France as being like delicate croissants and butter sauces, but that's like food you eat before you go work in the fields. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Although they did have that kind of high-end Michelin-starred foods as well. And we we had some of that too. And wine, I know. Uh, so, oh yes, we went to a wonderful winery outside of... So our first day was at Toulouse, and then we went to, to the, where the boat was being launched, which was a little tiny, adorable town called Onf. <laughs> I love saying oomph. It's spelled H-O-M-P-H-S, and apparently I'm pronouncing it right. It sounds like something that happens when you get kicked in the stomach, but uh, oomph was very beautiful. And then we went through field after field of grapes. I mean, this really was, was winery region and swam in a gorgeous lake. One of the... Um, tricky parts of my trip was before my daughter, uh, my younger daughter went on this, she broke her ankle and actually had to have several surgeries on it. So she was on crutches. So when we were in Toulouse, I went running around. It took me going to three pharmacies and I finally found one that would rent us a wheelchair for the week. Because sometimes when you, you pull up at a town, you're not in the center of things. You have to walk maybe a kilometer or two to get to the church you want to see or to get the re to the restaurant you want to go to. And so I, I thought it would be helpful. We had bikes for some of us, and I thought it would be helpful to have a, a wheelchair for her. Believe it or not, I mean, I think this speaks to the great low cost of healthcare in France, 16 euros for the week to rent a wheelchair. Pretty wow. good, don't you think? Yeah. I had to put down a 600 uh, euro deposit and that fact, but th that fact plays a role later because we went from Omf to, uh, oh gosh, I can't remember, another little town, overnighted there, <laughs> and then went to Carcassonne. Carcassonne is, is one of the top touristic destinations, not just in France, but in all of Europe because it's this exquisitely preserved, medieval, fortified city. It looks like something out of a Disney movie. I mean, big round towers with conical roofs, a moat, huge walls, and, and a, a, you know, a cathedral just rising at the top of a hill. It's absolutely spectacular, and it actually looks so good today because... In the 18th century, no, actually in the 19th century, the same man who saved Notre Dame saved the city of Carcassonne. His name was Villette Le Dic, and he, uh, he, he, he pushed back against fashion. Uh, in the 19th century, everybody thought that the medieval was kind of old-fashioned and, you know, let's tear down those churches and structures, and he thought, no, no. There is beauty in Notre Dame. There is beauty in fortified cities. And so he was able to convince the government to give the funds for him to preserve a car both Carcassonne and Notre Dame. And you still see his work today. And so we went around the town. We had a great photo shoot. I'll talk about that on another uh, episode. The photo shoot was hilarious and fun and great. And we learned about the history of the city, which was really fascinating 
tragic, maybe a story for today. I think people forget that the Crusades were not just in the quote-unquote Holy Land. The Pope, when he sent out his armies, was not just fighting uh, Muslims in Jerusalem. He also was, was sending armies against heretics or people who were considered heretics in Europe. And that's what happened in Carcassonne and in nearby Béziers. The rulers of those cities were not heretics, but they were tolerant. They, they believed as rulers that they should just let people have whatever religious practice they want. And the Pope didn't like this. And so the Pope sent an army to besiege Béziers because there were people who were called the Cahars or Cathars. I'm not sure how you pronounce it, actually, who didn't believe in all of the Catholic Church's teachings. And eventually, soldiers entered the city of Béziers, and their motto was, kill everyone, God will choose who goes to heaven. And they killed 20,000 people there, uh, historians think. So the uh, Duke of Carcassonne allowed the crusaders to enter his city with very little of a fight. They immediately imprisoned him, and eventually he was poisoned uh, and killed. Uh, but what, what's fascinating to me is he was a devout Catholic, and yet uh, because he tolerated others, that was too much of a crime in those days. Really well, interesting. Right. The, the more things change, the more things stay the same. People have these purity tests for each other all yeah. throughout history. There's a great book on the Crusades by Thomas Asbridge that I, uh, I just bought last week, and it goes into good detail about this stuff, so I can't wait to learn more because they're a fascinating period. Yeah. And so we went we went all the way around Carcassonne. And then the night we were supposed to have the photo shoot, we were hooked up to a power source. And suddenly a man in a vest came up to me and he said, oh, have you paid for this spot? And we said, oh, no, we didn't realize we had to pay. He said, yes, but I think this is reserved. So you need to go through the lock, right? There was a lock right next to us right away into a larger parking area for the boats and you can rent the space, but you, you have to do it now because the lock's about to close. We had just gotten back from exploring Carcassonne. We put we had put the wheelchair on the back mm. of the boat. I went running up to the lock to secure the ropes. And as I was standing there with nobody near the wheelchair in the lock, the lock made the boat rock a bit and you know how things, disasters always happen in slow motion? Yes. <laughs> I saw the wheelchair slowly, slowly rolling to the edge of the boat. And before I could say anything, there was nobody near it, fall into the lock and sink. There was a tourist boat next to us and people actually screamed as they saw. <laughs> I love being the source of people's screams. Yeah. And I, I, my daughter was at the front of the boat, my older daughter, and she saw me like clawing at the air. I, I couldn't get a sound out. She's like, what, what happened? And I told her the, the wheelchair sank. Uh, so that made the rest of the trip rather difficult. Did you say your uh, deposit was 600 euro? Yep. Um, I buy 600 euros. Yeah, but that was the least of it. The, the biggest problem was if you're on crutches, it's a very tiring way to get a, get around. And my, my poor daughter's uh, wrists would get very much in pain and we would have to stop and, and uh, it slowed us down. 
It does so remind you of the difficulty faced in travel sometimes by people who whose bodies have special needs, right? My grandfather yeah. had one leg. He lost it in the middle to the you know, the middle of his life from for cancer, mm-hmm. but continued to be active. And we would travel with him. We would go on boats sometimes. And I just remember how incredibly tense those seconds always were when my grandfather with one leg in his crutches would have to get from like the dinghy into the boat or vice versa or onto the tender or whatever it was. Because in that moment, he's completely helpless if something were going to go wrong and he's going to end up in the water. Well, uh, on this subject, my daughter, Trix, she had to fly back to the U.S. alone. I was staying longer in Europe. Her friend was supposed to fly back with her, but had an emergency, a family emergency, ended up leaving the trip two days early. And so Trix, I brought her to the airport in Toulouse and then waved goodbye, thinking she would have wheelchair service, be able to transfer to her plane in Charles de Gaulle. And then because of high winds in Toulouse, her plane was hours late. She missed her connecting flight. It was the last flight of the day from Paris. And she got booked on a on a flight the next morning and Air France put her up in a hotel. But unfortunately, Air France does not control the people who push the wheelchairs. And she got abandoned at the gate for three hours. Well, and because her original flight that she'd had the wheelchair for had already gone. And so they didn't put her, they didn't pay attention that she needed another arrangement. Is that right? No, they they knew. Apparently they knew. I mean, they they had picked her up from the flight from Toulouse and taken her to the desk where, you know, the pl- changes were made. And then the desk kept trying to call. I was worried after two hours, she finally called me because she's, she's very resilient. She didn't want to make a fuss. But after two hours, she got worried that she was going to have to sleep sitting upright in the, in the airport because it was 10 o'clock at night at that point. And so I started trying to get through to everybody. I started tweeting because I know that customer service people look at Twitter and I thought that might be the best way to get help. And finally, at the three hour mark, somebody got her and uh, brought her to the airport hotel. Is there anything you Uh, could have done differently to have avoided that scenario? I felt very guilty that she was traveling alone. That 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 was that was a, a big mistake. And it, I went on to uh, Facebook. There is a group for women writers there to see if anybody there had any any suggestions. And I actually got a lot of tweets from people who live their lives in wheelchairs and told me that this situation was really common, that often at d- different airports are, Charles de Gaulle is apparently one of the worst uh, for people with disabilities, that they're understaffed, that the people they hire are overworked and underpaid and uh, will often just abandon uh, their cares. Wow. Well, but so, if you're interested in this topic, there's a really interesting guy. Uh, I don't know his actual name, but on Instagram, he's Curb Free Corey Lee. And oh, yes, I know Cur- and Corey Lee is his name. Oh, there, I, that would be his name. And he's uh, often watching his wheelchair, which he depends on to get around all the time. It's a mechanical or electrical wheelchair. He watches it through the plane window while it gets bashed into the storage, you know, underneath the plane or taken yeah. apart or scratched or. And uh, he, he chronicles a lot of these incidents on his Instagram. Because he, he travels more than you or I do. He's always on the road. So it's a really right. interesting perspective of travel when you see it from the, from the perspective of someone who, who needs to have those extra tools to get around. Right. So uh, so back to the trip. So we, so we, we were in Occitanie. 
The highlight of the trip when we were there for three days was Carcassonne. We we went to museums there, which were uh, filled with really beautiful works of art. Uh, we spent a lot of time exploring the castle and learning about life in those times. Did you know loophole was that that word was originally had to do with these small slits in castle walls that people would be able to shoot arrows through? That was the original loophole. Ooh. And so, you know, we 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 swam in lakes because it was so hot and saw the French enjoying their leisure time. We we spent time in small towns. We went to wineries. Um, overall, it was just a really, really delightful look at rural France and at this extraordinary medieval city. Sounds like a quite an adventure, to be honest with you. I mean... A lot. Yeah, a lot. it really was. It really was. And, you know, and, and there were some surprises. I hadn't realized how far certain places would be. Like there was one town that's known as the prettiest medieval village in France that we had wanted to get to. But without with Trixie not being able to wheel, we, we just realized we could. We thought we had we would be able to get there on our, our own steam, but we, we realized we couldn't. So if you do a Canal de Midi trip, and I highly, highly recommend it, make sure you rent the bicycles uh, because you're, you're going to need them to get from place to place. And um, I'm supposing that when you use a lock, there's a charge, but is that included in your fare with La Boat? There is no charge for the locks. Interesting. No. Yeah. I mean, there, there, were, there were some some charges that I hadn't known about. You know, they, they charge you by the mile, just as they do with a rental car. So that's something that you have to uh, look out for when you're renting from any company. But our La boat, boat was really nice. We had three bedrooms in it uh, for the six of us. Each had their own little bathroom with a shower. Oh, we had a full kitchen with a refrigerator that is as big as the refrigerator I have at home and a gas stove and a, a table. And on the deck, there were two tables and a nice padded area where you could sun yourself if you're 20 and spend all your time in a bikini. <laughs> um, it, it, it just was a really, really beautiful trip. Does sound like an adventure. And did you so hit tell the me sides about- of the canal real quick? I mean, that's what I'd be terrified of, steering the boat and it hits the side. We did hit the side of the canal once when my daughter Trix was driving. She 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 took a corner too fast, and we actually hit it in front of a whole bunch of people in the city of Treb, where a whole bunch of people were sitting at, at cafes uh, along the side of the river, and they all started cheering and yelling, you know, très bien, laughing at us. So anyway, so tell me about the Queen Mary. Did you get to drive the boat? <laughs> no, they frown upon that. You know, it's like a yeah. thousand feet long. If you set it on its back end straight up, it would pretty much be as tall as to where the Empire State Building's antenna begins. That's as far wow. up as it would go. It's a very long ship. And yet still not remotely the largest passenger, you know, leisure ship in the world. It used to be, you know, 20 years ago when it first came out, but now they have many other ships have surpassed it. Yeah, I took the Queen Mary 2 from Southampton, England, over to New York City, which is that great transatlantic crossing that is probably, you know, one of the oldest leisure routes that you could possibly take, you know, that, that has been in existence uh, for so long. And it, it just, just, if you want to just talk about the motorized boats, it's been happening, I think, since the 1840s. 
So this is a classic journey. It takes about seven days, although the ship could go much, much faster, like five days faster than that. But it, our trip was over seven days and it was packed. And, you know, all oh. kinds of people were using it to get back from Europe or, or to, you know, or vice versa, you know, using it to, to regular old com- commute. Some people do it several times a year. Some people once oh. a year. There were families, lots of kids. Uh, you know, not nearly as many kids as you'd find in a standard cruise ship. And most of the kids seem to behave like adults because, you know, their their parents take them to Europe. So they were they were pretty good. They were pretty good. Um, hmm. And it was remarkably civilized. I've taken this trip twice before. I tend to do it more or less every 10 years. And it's right. completely different from a regular cruise. I mean, it's the same in that you need to go to the restaurants to eat and there's a place to bar and there's entertainment. But there's no limbo contest. There's no music everywhere. You know, there's um, no drunk people throwing up in the hallways at one in the morning. <laughs> it, it's much more of a stable, accomplished group of people just taking this amazing journey that they've always read about or that they've taken many times before. And a great place to for conversation, for martinis, for reading a book in a quiet spot. It's one of the last major ships with a library in it. And you can um, everyone rushes to the library the first day and checks out some books to last them for the journey. And the ship is also technically built differently than all the other cruise ships you might take, including the other ships that Cunard runs. The Queen Mary 2 is technically an ocean liner. The hull is a little bit thicker and different. It's got more stabilizers. It's built for ocean travel should the ocean get rough, where more cruise ships are just like tubs, essentially. You know, they're much less stable when the waves are coming. There weren't very many waves, by the way. People always think, I could never take that, I get sick. But it's not like the movie A Perfect Storm. Uh, I've, of the three times I've now taken the Queen Mary 2, the sea has been very calm. Huh. Almost, no, uh, it was the middle, the f- second time I took it, it was like a lake. It was almost nothing. This time we had, a, a, you know, four foot waves the first day. It cut right through them like it was hot butter. And then after the first day or two, it was absolutely fine. You could you could ho- put a, dr- cook, a cup of water by your bed and it would never turn over. So it was, a, it was just... Uh. Wow. And how was it different this time? Uh, have they changed things much? And and I know that the Queen Mary is always known for the entertainment it has on board. What what was the specialty for this cruise? Well, the last time it was in a refurbishment was 16. It's about to have another set of refurbishments coming up soon where they're going to change the spa. But in 16, they did it. And they added a bunch of single cabins. There's also a kennel because a lot of people take their animals across the sea when they travel. Huh. Um, and it's if you don't want your animal to go on a plane because you don't think it's safe, you can put them on the top deck and visit them once a day during visiting hours. It's kind of adorable. They've expanded that kennel. Um, you know, this is the way people used to travel. So it's sort of interesting at the differences compared to other cruise ships. It really is designed to sort of get people from A to B in a civilized way. But it hasn't changed a lot. It's still that classic stroll on the deck in the morning to get your exercise, you know, meet people over martinis to have a chat and meet each other before dinner. A couple nights, there's always a formal night where mm. you're expected to wear a tuxedo or some other formal Do you wear. have a tuxedo? I had a tuxedo made for this. Wow. You know, um, I've probably heard, people, people listening, I've probably heard about the great tailors of Hong Kong. Oh, I'd gone to some of these tailors in Hong Kong, which can make you a suit in three days if you visit Hong Kong for a very low price. And um, they, one of the ones I go to called Sam's Tailor had my measurements on file. And because oh. of COVID, they've now adapted to, you know, so few people were going to Hong Kong for so many years. They've sure. adapted to fulfilling orders online. 
or you know they'll get you on on Zoom or FaceTime to do your measurements and just chuck everything and then show you what you would like to see. And you say, "I like that button. I like that." And so I made, had a suit made essentially by Skype. And um, my tuxedo arrived um, before I left, and I wore a brand new custom made tux for not too much money. From a, it sounds the most pretentious thing in the world, doesn't it? From my tailor in Hong Kong. <laughs> wow, that's yeah. amazing! That's and, amazing. It was just so much fun. Yeah, there's karaoke, the entertainment. I don't know. I think uh, I probably wouldn't choose to see the shows that are always on there. But for this journey, Kunar uh, does a lot of special voyages where they'll have uh-huh. experts in. Uh, I know when it first launched, they had uh, Carly Simon give a concert and they videoed it and wow. it was on HBO. This time when I was on, they had the English National Ballet or at least you know, five or six young members of the English National Ballet. And they would have workshops that you could sign up for. You could watch them rehearse. And then you could watch their showcase that they did in, in the theater twice. So that was very cool, extremely popular. I'm sure a number of the people were on board just to meet the young ballerinas and to to participate in all that. But they'll have great speakers too. There was a mystery writer who specialized in Agatha Christie's era and the history of mystery writing. And she gave a bunch of talks. There was an astronomer who gave a bunch of talks. There was a guy who was a Nelson Mandela's bodyguard. And he gave a series of talks over the course of the seven days. You could see, you know, what they had to say in segments. There's a, there's a planetarium that you can go to. It's actually one of the theaters and they lower a cone down over a portion of the audience. But uh, that's actually been there too, ever since it began. It's just a really interesting way to travel and much quieter right. than, than all the other forms of uh, cruising that I've been on on the sea. Yeah, and a great way to deal with jet lag because the it, it gets not. moved up one day, right? Each yeah, the day. beauty, and I always recommend I've taken it both ways. I, you can go eastbound to to the UK or westbound to the US. I recommend going westbound all the time if you can only choose one way. And the reason is every night, almost I think five of the seven nights, we uh, lost an hour. Like we went back a time zone, so you actually got a twenty-five hour day because you had to keep setting the clock back again. Huh. So you got 25 hours a day, whereas if you go east, you only get 23 hours Three. a day on about five days. <laughs> so you actually get about a half a day's more vacation time if you go west. And you don't have to worry That's if you live funny. in New York area about uh, weight, heavy luggage because you can just huh. bring a trunk full of stuff that you bought in Europe and the airlines can't say a thing about it. Right, right. How great. Well, it sounds like we both had wonderful travel experiences, which is a perk of the job, I got to say. Maybe the major perk. Uh, well, thank you so much, Jason, for appearing on the Firmer Travel Show. Ahoy. Ahoy. And that's it for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with more next week. And to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. Watching cable.